the congregation, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 21. Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Please join with me in prayer to our God. Lord God Almighty, we approach unto Thee once again. Lord, we thank Thee that Thou art a fortress to us against Satan, against this world, against our own sin. We thank Thee that thou art tender and kind and loving. Lord, we ask that thou would show thy kindness again unto us and blessing us through this word. Blessing us in this sermon, O Lord. Help thou me to preach accurately, to do no disservice to thy word, to thy Christ. Help us all, Lord, to be taught by thy Spirit, to be led by him. Holy Spirit, please apply this word to our hearts. Make it real and tangible to us. Give us strength and conviction to put it into practice, to walk in thy paths. Lord, we need thee every hour. And indeed, this hour as well. Our great triune covenant God, thou hast reconciled us as thy children to thyself in thy only begotten Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for help, O Lord. We ask for thy grace to be poured upon us in greater measure. We might follow thee, might know thee, might love thee. Cause us to be lights in this dark place. Set our eyes again on thee every day, O Lord. We must look to the hills from whence our help comes from, O Lord. Help us to do so, to look to Thee above this earthly realm, to set our affections in heaven, where Thou art, Christ, where Thou art. Thou art our hope, Thou art our life. To live is to know and to serve Thee. Death is only gain to us. Make it so, O Lord, make it so, that we might cling to thy promises given to us in Christ. Lord Jesus, be magnified, be lifted up in our hearts as we study thy word. The Lord rebuke Satan from taking the word from us. Lord, allow the seed of the word to fall on good soil. O God, water it by thy spirit. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen.
Dear congregation, I read my Bible every day. I am working on my reading plan, as I trust we all are. I mark off the chapters on a reading plan in the back of my Bible. And sometimes it's easy to just be marking off the chapters, to just be getting through the text, to make sure you get your quota for the day. But in so doing, we simply gloss over so many moving passages of Scripture, so many passages of Scripture that demonstrate to us the glory, the sweetness, the kindness, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So brightly do they shine in those passages. And it's easy for our mind to wander and to just think about being obedient and making sure we get our Bible reading done. But we must slow down. Pay attention to the text where God speaks to us. And we will see beautiful, beautiful pictures of Christ and his mercy to his people, such as we will see today and next week. We shall read the entire passage of Mark 5, verses 21 through 43, all the way through the end of the chapter. And this, is, this consists, this chunk of text, consists of two moving accounts contained in one narrative. Two different people coming to Christ for his mercy, coming in faith. Today, we will look at one of them. Next week, we will look at the other. We're going to look at the one that interjects in the middle of the narrative. And then next week, come back and take the narrative back together and see it in its whole. This passage is moving. It's instructive. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it sets forth to us the richness that is our faith in Christ. The beauty that is communion with God. And what he has done for us. It's a delight to our heart. It's a feast for the soul. Let us read verses 21 through 43. This is after the healing of the demoniac. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, that is power, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, 
There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain, which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is, being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Amen. May he bless his word. We will be looking specifically at the woman with the issue of blood, the woman who had the hemorrhaging. Let us notice three aspects of this case now before us, of this woman with the issue of blood. First, the woman's suffering. The woman's suffering. Secondly, the woman's faith. The woman's faith. And third, Christ's charge. Christ's charge. The woman's suffering, the woman's faith, and Christ's charge. First, the woman's suffering, which we find in verses 25 and 26. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. This issue of blood, we see that it brought great physical and emotional suffering to this poor woman. We read that in the crowd, she was there. This crowd had come to the town. Jesus had now passed through to the other side of the Sea of Galilee once again. We must understand just how sharp, how significant her suffering indeed was. Now, we are unsure as to exactly what this disease was that she was suffering under, but we do know that she had endured it throughout the course of 12 years at this point. 12 years. It may be that it was a constant hemorrhaging. She was just always bleeding all of these many years. Or, over the course of the 12 years, she had periodical and persistent bleeding, outbreaks of this condition. Well, whatever it may have been, this no doubt caused great discomfort in her body. Now, those of us or people that we know who have had to endure a lingering condition understand what this kind of prolonged pain can do to a person. Long suffering under some physical pain wears the body down. And it not only wears the body down, it wears the mind down as well. It affects all aspects of personhood. Chronic pain does. It causes the sufferer to be physically exhausted just from the pain itself, to be exasperated, to struggle with depression, to be irritable, short-tempered. The person begins to long for just one moment of relief. 
more than anything else. It makes a person willing to give whatever is necessary to attain that relief, even. We see that this woman was so vexed by the disease that she had even gone so far as to have suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had. For when you think about it, of what true value, is there any value to worldly goods, worldly possessions, if one does not even have the constitution with which to enjoy them? Indeed, not so. This woman had come to intimately and personally know this through experience. And in her desperation, the text tells us that she had spent all that she had. All that was to her, she had spent on doctor's visits, attempting to find some measure of relief, just for a moment. Yet, it was all to no avail. All to no avail. Having spent all that was hers, yet we read that she was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse grew worse. It is especially the case that when a person has brought themselves to poverty and seeking relief for some illness, some disease, they've even brought themselves now to poverty, trying to relieve it, and yet relief has evaded them entirely, that their suffering and their desperation grow all the more severe. Her estate had dried up. Her estate had dried up. But the issue of blood, this fountain of blood remained. Now to add suffering, to add to the suffering of her case, we must understand that not only was her body still in constant pain, not only was all her money now squandered, but additionally, and likely worst of all, she had been removed from the pleasure of society and of the public worship of God. This particular disease had made her ceremonially unclean. We read in Leviticus 19 and 25, And if a woman have an issue, and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean even until even. And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days out of the time of her separation, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be unclean. It's the law of Moses. The uncleanliness. If someone were to touch her, they also would become unclean. So instead of the normal menstrual cycle where she would remain unclean, if it went beyond that and just kept going, the law stated that she would remain unclean throughout the entirety of her suffering under that condition. This woman was unable to attend the religious services of the temple. And if there was anyone that even touched her, they themselves became unclean. Therefore, people kept away from her. People kept away from her. So there she was, year after excruciating year, in pain, without human fellowship, unable to attend God's worship, and now financially destitute. Truly, Such suffering is hard to imagine for 12 years. Her desperation was great at this point, but she would soon come to Jesus, as we shall see. In this, let us take a moment to remember the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, and that we belong to a better covenant, a more sure covenant, that of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace 
That although God's care for his people was demonstrated in his giving the law to govern them, yet the law itself could only be bondage unto his people. It could only be bondage unto us, as Paul says. And it could be no more than our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, as he says in Galatians 3.24. Truly, dear believers, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, the Apostle John writes in John 1.17. This could be no more clearly demonstrated than the case of this woman. Let us also notice the impotence of the doctors. The impotence of the doctors. We read that she spent all that she had acquired, she had acquired all that she possessed in order to become well by their healing. She gave it all to the doctors that they might heal her, yet was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, the text says. The incompetent and impotent doctors only made her disease worse. But this was used of God to teach her the need she had of something greater, something better, and also taught her of her folly and entrusting herself to these physicians rather than to God. She kept going to them year after year until she had spent all that she had in her desperation. She went to the doctors, but only became worse than before. She expended all her living as the, as the apostle says in Luke, to obtain their aid. But they proved not only unable to help her, but in fact, they only made her worse. Herein is displayed also to us the inability of man and the folly of us humans trusting in human ability. This is a lesson she learned. As our Lord Jesus Christ said, the flesh profiteth nothing. We would do well to learn this. And to cease any longer, dear congregation, to vainly expend ourselves in trusting the flesh, in trusting human methods, in trusting lists, in trusting programs. There's many things in this world that are a great aid to us, that God blesses us with. But they in themselves are completely impotent to make us righteous, to make us justified before God, to help us live this life. So just as this woman, in seeking remedy for her physical ailment, was helped nothing, helped nothing at all by these impotent doctors, so too the sinner is not saved, but only made the worse in his vain trusting of impotent soul doctors. Impotent soul doctors. Now, we must ask, what are those impotent soul doctors that sinners often trust themselves to, rather than coming to Christ? And what are these soul doctors that even we as Christians often find ourselves spending all of our living upon rather than coming to Christ? Many are led astray, have been throughout centuries, and still are, by what many American Puritans proposed as preparationism. It was a doctrine they developed called preparationism. They wrongly believed that there must be a time of over, I would say, self-examination and even moral preparation before men come to Christ. Before they come and cast themselves upon his grace and faith, there must be a time of deep self-examination, the preparation of the soul, the preparation of the morals, 
They must ensure that they really do truly feel the weight of their sin. They must ensure that they have really truly repented of all known sin. That they, in essence, are good enough to come to Christ. Thomas Shepard was guilty of this. Though a great Puritan, he was guilty of preparationism. Now, we know that this is a dangerous folly. Rather than bringing the sinner to throw themselves entirely upon Christ for salvation, in this doctrine of preparationism, he is led astray to believe that there is something he must do before he comes to Christ. Just like the rich young ruler in the Gospels. He sees that he had kept many of the commandments, even from a child. And then he seeks to ascertain what other good things he needs to do. What else do I lack? What does he lack? What good deed does he now need to do? What does he have to accomplish in order to inherit eternal life, he asks Jesus. But Jesus points out his folly and his misplaced trust. Namely, by showing him that he is to cast off everything. All of those things. All of his earthly possessions. And rest in Christ alone. Truly, dear congregation, no amount, no amount of moral or ethical reformation can make a sinner worthy of coming to Christ. That is not how we came. For even our good religious deeds are stained with sin and thus are, as Isaiah says, filthy rags. Another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, said, Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. Their best services are as glorious sins until they come to Christ in faith. There is nothing, dear congregation, nothing that a sinner can or must do before coming to Christ. He must only come. He must only come. Preparing to come to Christ not only falls short of salvation in Christ, but also serves to make the sinner worse off than he was before, just like these doctors. For in preparing to come to Christ, he heaps up his sins and spurning the free offer of salvation in Christ Jesus, only adding one more sin to the pile. In all of our gospel preaching to the lost, dear congregation, let us be careful that we are never pointing people inward. Don't point people inward to themselves as impotent doctors. Rather, ensure that you are pointing people to Christ, the true physician, not to themselves. We are not in the business as Christians of making men moral. We're not in the business of making men moral, of making this country moral, of making this country conservative. No, we as Christians are in the business of making immoral men saints by Christ. By grace, through faith. We must not go beyond Scripture. And this is what the preparationists have done. Scripture plainly states, in one verse, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let him that heareth say, Come! Let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, we have not yet found a word of preparationism in our Bible, and we do not expect to do so. All we find is Christ's declaration, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's what we find. Salvation, dear congregation, may be pictured as men who are lost in the woods. Imagine it. Wandering through the mountains in dark and dangerous places. Standing on loose ground, sharp rocks near cliffs. Knowing not even where they're going at all. In the dark. As it grows darker and darker, they continue groping along many precipices, unaware of their great danger that is right near them. Then, one begins to slip and fall down the steep mountain. He grabs hold of a bush whose roots are embedded deeply into the the cliff, into the rock. And he tries to pull himself up by it. As he hangs over the drop of the cliff, his fate, his friends cry out to him, Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! The man clings with all his might to this little bush. But what none of the men could see, the man holding on to the bush, and the men, his friends above, what none of them could see down below was Jesus Christ standing at the bottom of the cliff, lifting out his hands and saying, Let go, let go, let go, ready to catch him. All around him, his friends said, hold on. But down below was Christ the Lord saying, let go. If the man would but look down to Jesus, entrust himself to Jesus, and let go of the bushes of sin and self-righteousness and fall into the arms of Christ, he should be saved. If we imagine the man then saying, I cannot fall into thy arms, O Lord. I must first make preparation I must learn how to make this little bush into a ladder and climb down to thee. We would think it very foolish. So too, for the sinner to think that he must or even can do anything to prepare himself before falling into the arms of Christ's grace is also foolish. Another impotent soul doctor that people trust themselves with is one which even we Christians are prone to often go to. Namely, our perception of our progress and sanctification can become a snare to us, which keeps us from continually coming to Christ. Indeed, we might think to ourselves, I was not saved by works, but I must keep myself saved by works. We know one prominent evangelical that says that. Works did not make me good enough for salvation, but they keep me good enough for fellowship with God, for communion with God, if nothing else. I cannot come unto Christ in prayer and duty and reading to the Lord's table to partake in the means of grace until I've had a little more sanctification and a little less sin. But what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. So the circumcision, the good religious work came after as a sign of his faith, a seal of his faith. Our growth and sanctification, dear congregation, follows our salvation by grace through faith. You might say to me then, ah, well, if faith is the issue, then I should get a little more faith before I come to Christ, whether to be saved or to maintain fellowship with him, communion with him. I'm not worthy of the Lord's Supper this this week, because I need a little bit more faith. For you yourself said, you yourself said, Pastor, that it's faith that is the issue. 
Well, where shall you get this faith? But from Christ himself. We are saved by grace, not faith. We are saved by grace, not faith. Faith is the means, not the substance of our salvation. It's the means of our salvation. As the Puritan Thomas Taylor once said, we are not saved for believing, but by believing. Therefore, let us search out those things, those impotent soul doctors that we are so prone to seek out rather than coming only and immediately to Christ. We must ask ourselves with Isaiah, wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Forsake these false hopes, dear Christian. We must do it daily. We must do it frequently. Come to Christ freely and immediately. Second point, the woman's faith. We looked at her suffering, the impotence of the doctors. Now we come to look at the woman's faith. We see this in verses 27 through 33. Let us read. And when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, that his power, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. In these verses we see her faith displayed. This is a demonstration of true faith, saving faith, such as we described just a moment ago. Notice where this faith originated. Where did it originate? Her faith was born in the same way that all true faith is born, namely in the hearing of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. She had heard of the many great things Jesus had done, his free offer of mercy, his teaching on the kingdom of God, his parables, his miracles, and especially his ability to heal the sick and his willingness to do so. This is what she had heard of. Now, she had seen that Jesus was here in her town. Here in her town. He was going to heal a leader of the synagogue's daughter. If Christ was currently employed in doing good and healing, then surely he would heal her as well. The iron was hot and she planned to strike. Let us also be sure to come to Christ and urge others to come to Christ while we are able. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Let us not wait and waste any time in coming to Christ and urge others the same, just as she wasted no time. Now what this faith led her to do? What did it lead her to do? She had heard of Jesus, and so immediately she came into the press behind and touched his garment, the press meaning the crowd. Notice that her faith allowed nothing to discourage her, to hamper her from coming to Jesus. She paid no mind to the fact that a large crowd stood around him. The press was about him. Couldn't even get to him. She did not think to herself, as people so often do, there's far too many difficulties in my path. There's too many things to overcome. There's too many difficulties between me and Jesus. 
I cannot go to Jesus right now. Plus, look, Jesus is pressed about on many sides by the crowd. He's probably too busy for me anyway. I shall come at some other time when it is easier to get to Christ. Then I shall come. Many people make this their deathbed. Rather, she said this to herself. If I may but touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Having now exhausted all of her resources on physicians of no value, like Job says, faith was born in her to come to Christ. To come to Christ. It is often the case that people will only apply themselves to Jesus once they've exhausted all other helpers. They'll go anywhere but Christ. But as Matthew Henry says, Christ will be a sure refuge to them who come to him, even if it's that they make him their last refuge. He'll be a sure refuge to them, even if, it's, even if he is their last refuge. Her faith was such that she believed that even merely touching a thread of his garment, the hem of his robe, in faith would be her salvation. Let us not despise, dear congregation, even the smallest acts of faith, whether they are in ourselves or in other Christians. She believed, and so she received. Faith is the gift of God, as we know. And therefore, even in its smallest measures, even when it does the smallest acts of true faith, it is great. John Rogers said, Weak faith is true faith. For it is not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the truth of our faith. Not the weakness of our faith that condemns us, but the absence of faith. Notice also the object of her faith. The object of her faith. Upon what was her faith placed? Christ. Christ. If you notice, the verb is in the passive tense. If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Not I will make myself whole, not active, but passive. I shall be made whole by another from something without. Her faith rested not in her own power to do anything. That's not where her faith rested. Other than to exercise that faith upon Christ. It was Christ's power that she trusted in. Christ's power that she longed for. Christ's power and not her own. And no longer those impotent physicians. She let go and she fell into the arms of Christ in coming to him. So too in salvation. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, and reigning. That is the object of our faith. We trust that he shall do the work for us. And as Christians, that he has done the work for us. We are totally passive in salvation. Here in this local congregation, we are very fine with echoing the Bible's words on that, that we are passive in salvation. We find great delight and great hope and great assurance and great joy in knowing this. Christ is the active one. We are the passive ones. As Paul says, Paul says in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified that's good news after she had privily or secretly laid hold of his garment we read that straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague 
As soon as she placed her faith in Christ, so soon was she healed. So soon was she healed. Twelve long years. Twelve. She had no relief at her own striving, at her own attempts, only growing worse. And yet here, in an instant, not progressively, she is immediately made whole. Such is the power of Christ in this instance. Let us notice that she sensed in herself that she was healed, the text says. The pain under which she had so long agonized is gone. It immediately ceased. Health returned to her body. And she knew it. She knew it. She could not deny it. There was no doubt to her that something had changed within her body. That she was delivered from the illness and would no longer suffer under its condemnation. So too in salvation. In the twinkling of an eye. In an exact moment of time, we are saved. It is not linear, but punctiliar. It's not progressive, but instant. We were born again, dear congregation, as Christians, to a living hope, brought from death to life, from condemnation to justification, from bondage under sin to liberty in Christ, from sons of perdition to sons of God. No one who has been saved, who has been made a new, create, a new creation in Christ Jesus, can ever doubt that this act has taken place. Can ever truly doubt. He knows it. He feels it. He rests in it. He cannot deny it. Many of us have come from non-Christian backgrounds in this room. From unbelieving backgrounds. And we really know that moment. When we were saved. But even those who have been in the church their whole life and under the blessing of God cannot remember a day they didn't know Jesus. We're still saved in a moment. The twinkling of an eye have been Christ since that moment. And they know that they are not like the world, that they are not unsaved, but that they are Christ's. Perhaps she was discreet in her coming as we see that she kind of slunk away. Maybe she was discreet in her coming out of a misguided humility. She should not bother to interrupt Jesus, she may have thought. She should not keep him from doing good. He's on his way to go heal. She would not draw attention to herself. She would only briefly come to be healed by the mere touch of her beloved object and then would withdraw back into the crowd. That was her plan. But just as truly as her healing could not be hidden from herself, so too it could not be hidden from Christ, the omniscient God. We read, Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? Jesus, dear congregation, and this is good news, Jesus is not insensible to his own acts, to his own acts. He has decreed all things, especially the salvation and the redemption of his own children, whom he loves. When one more sheep is added to his fold, the good shepherd is aware of it, and he immediately sets his care upon it. He's not ignorant of the number or the state of his saints. He cares for them. We have here another strange case from his disciples in the text, another somewhat backhanded rebuke. 
They say, we, we read, And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Now this is a natural enough response for deadened and ignorant sinners who mind the things of the world rather than the things of God, as we see Jesus so often rebuking his apostles for. But what this does is betray their own insensitivities to Christ's ministry and their own lack of faith. They were so insensitive to what Christ was doing that they took his words literally. Now, if you read the Gospels, oftentimes the problem that the disciples have in understanding what Jesus is talking about is that they're taking his words literally. For instance, when Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They then turn to each other, each other and say, Is it because we've brought no bread? Oftentimes you'll read that. They took his words literally. Jesus meant not simply who physically touched me. There was tons of people, a thronging crowd of people touching him all over physically. But who touched me in faith that virtue unto salvation should go forth from me? He said this not because he was unaware, but to draw this woman out. To draw this woman out. To make a public display of her faith and his power to all those who were present in the crowd. Jesus continued to, quote, look around about to see her that had done this thing. He knew exactly who it was. He knew exactly who it was. He knew her history. He knew her creation or her condition. He knew what had just taken place with her. It was he that crafted her in the womb. But he seeks to draw her out, to make a monument unto himself of her. The woman now knew that her previous plans to remain hidden, to discreetly sneak away, were all futile. The woman, fearing and trembling, we read, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. She was afraid that Jesus would be angry. But he does not rebuke her. He's not angry with her. Because Christ not only loves to save sinners, but to save sinners publicly as a display and testament to his own goodness and his own glory. He not only owns believers before his father, but owns them as his children before the world and before the devil, before the angels of heaven. So the woman is drawn forth. She comes publicly before Christ and confesses all that had taken place, all of which he knew, all that he had done for her. Let us then, therefore, dear congregation, not be ashamed of what Christ has done for us at any moment. Not put the light of the gospel under a basket, but on a lampstand, especially at this time. Let us not be ashamed to own Christ before this watching world, For he is not ashamed to own us before his own Father and the holy angels in heaven. Public confession of faith is but the infant cries of the new birth. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Another illustration. Once there was a photographer who went to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., To all those who have visited, I have not had the opportunity to visit. It is apparently a very affecting scene. 
a long, stark black wall of stone, polished, with thousands of names of slain soldiers, many of them no more than 18. The photographer walked up and down the monument, and he came to a small display that had a picture of a soldier, a small flag, and a plaque with only three words on it. Only one son. The photographer could not help but be deeply moved by this. He took some pictures of it. Soon a man came and stood next to him and he said, Do you like it? Well, the photographer said, Oh yes, very much. I do like it. That's why I'm taking pictures of it. Then the man said, I'm glad to hear that you like it. That is my son. That is my son. The photographer was a Christian. And he was moved to tears and began to weep at this. And then he said, God gave his only son for me, that he would also own me as his son. In salvation, dear congregation, by the sacrificial giving of God's only begotten son, God has publicly owned us, publicly owned us, saying that that is my child. That is what he says of us. So we should respond. Through God's only begotten son, Jehovah is my God. Third and last, Christ's charge to the woman in verse 34. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. After Jesus draws the woman out of the crowd and makes her a public testimony of his love and mercy through her own confession before everyone, he then turned to her and said, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. Pause for a moment, dear congregation. Pause for a moment, dear believer, and think of this. Think of the fact that God loves to crown true faith with the richest of diadems, with the most shimmering and bright jewels, because Christ is crowned with the richest glory. The crown of faith is salvation. It was nothing in her, not even her faith itself, but the object of her faith that made her faith effectual unto being healed, being saved from this disease. By faith cometh peace. By faith comes peace, and peace from a wholeness that we have in Christ and through Christ. It is noteworthy that Jesus then charges the woman to go in peace, he says. In salvation, we are brought to peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were once warring rebels against God. But now, by the bloody cross of Christ, we have been brought to peace with God. Not only as God, but as our own Father. Thus, The charge is to live in this peace, to live in this peace, to rest in it, and to do all of our duties out of it with an eye to it. Guilt, or need, begets the taking hold of grace by faith. And this begets gratitude in the believer, from which all of his spiritual duties are done unto God. Out of gratitude for understanding this peace that has been given us, though we were so guilty by grace. But often, our peace 
dear congregation, as we know, even as Christians, is but little felt. It's little sensed. Our sins chase us down like hellhounds, as Charles Spurgeon said, gnashing and biting at our heels. But faith says to the guilty conscience, peace, be still. The tumultuous waves of our soul, of our hearts, are stilled and we are brought to rest in Christ again by faith in this peace. Peace returns to our hearts and our minds when we think about what Christ did for us and not about our sins. When we look outward on the object of our faith rather than inward. Jesus also charges her to be whole of thy plague. Well, she's already whole of her plague. What could this mean? Well, it means recognize and remember that thou art whole of thy plague. Thou hast been delivered from it. The work is finished, and all thou must now do is continue to let go. Continue to resign thyself into my arms. I shall carry thee. I am thy peace. That's what it means. Our lack of assurance, our lack of sensing this peace that we have in Christ does not nullify its reality, dear believer. It doesn't nullify its reality. Faith breeds the peace of assurance. Breeds the peace of assurance. But it is not identical with that faith. When we find this to be the case with us, we're struggling to find that peace, to sense that peace, to feel assurance with Christ. Through self-examination, we must not allow this to cause us doubt. We can't allow it to cause us doubt. Doubt has no place next to faith. Doubt is the enemy of spiritual peace. Faith is the protector of the spiritual peace that we have through Christ. But also, doubt does not nullify our peace, dear congregation. It cannot. Well, let's not think that it does. William Gurnall, my favorite Puritan, wrote, quote, How many, alas, of our precious saints of God must we shut out from being believers if there is no faith but what amounts to assurance? If the only people that are truly saved that we can truly stamp as these are Christians are those who are most assured in their faith, then we'd have to cast out a whole lot of believers, he says. Shall we say their faith went away in the departure of their assurance? Assurance, he says, is like the sunflower, which opens with the day and shuts with the night. But faith is a plant that can grow even in the shade, a grace that can find the way to heaven even in a dark night. It can walk in darkness and yet trust in the name of the Lord. It can see the press around Jesus and still make its way to him, knowing that it must only touch the hem of the robe. This woman did not have peace spoken to her until she came in faith to Christ and until she was made whole from her plague. When the plague of sin is removed from us as believers, as Christians, through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, whereon he was made sin for us, and in him and in his sacrifice we were made the righteousness of God in him, it's only then, when that plague of sin is removed from us, in the cross of Christ, that we then have peace. And that peace is truly spoken to us at that point. Thus, we have to remember, as we live the Christian life, as we struggle with ups and downs in our spiritual life, that our peace ebbs and flows with the remembrance that we have of the fact that we are healed from this plague of sin. That we are healed from this plague of sin. Let us then therefore be deeply affected 
dear congregation, with this reality. Namely, that there is no peace, no peace between God and man outside of Christ. In Christ, there is no condemnation. But outside of Christ, all that exists for man is condemnation. We should remember this when we think of our unbelieving family. When we think of our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. Gurnall says this as well to the unbeliever. Quote, Therefore you who think so basely of the gospel and of the professors of it, because at this present time their peace and comfort in the world are not yet come, should know that it is on their way to them and comes to stay everlastingly with them, whereas your peace, unbeliever, whatever peace you have in this life, is going from you every moment and is sure to leave you without any hope of returning to you again. Look not how the Christian begins, but how the Christian ends. End quote. Not how the Christian begins, but how the Christian ends. Meaning throughout the Christian life, we will have ebbs and flows in our assurance and our peace and how close we feel to God. But that it is sure and steadfast and we will cross that Jordan into the promised land and be made perfect. Dear congregation, make no delay in coming to Christ even as a believer daily. He is merciful and loving. Merely a touch of the hem of his garment can heal all of us. Be urgent in your dealings with Christ and be urgent in your appeals to other people to push them, to push through the press and come to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come to thee. We thank thee that we have such great salvation in thee and through thee alone, that thou hast given us thy son. Lord, help us to be sensible of this to let nothing stand between us and Christ. Do not trust in our feelings. Do not trust in our progress and the things of religion. Do not trust in how good or bad we are, but to trust in thy Son, Jesus Christ, given to us, given for us. Lord Jesus, we find our all and all in thee. We confess the whole truth before thee, that thou art our salvation, our hope, and our desire. Father, please help all of us to walk in the light of this truth. Give us great peace, great assurance, and great faith in what thou hast done. In Jesus' name, amen.